0: One day I hear, like, Dwayne every support to the president's office over the intercom system. So I heard it, and I'm just like, whoa, like, why is the president want to fire me? I don't even work here. I'm a temp in the accounts payable department, and I just graduated from Inglewood High School seven months ago. And he was like, wait, you're not even a- an adult yet. And I was like, no, I'm like, I'm 18. But he was like, well, how did you learn how to do this? And he had all 180 of my sketches on his desk. He said, would you consider working here as a designer? And I was like, yeah, how much do I have to pay you for this job? And uh, he was like, no, 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 we'll pay you. And so I turned 19 in December and I started as a professional footwear designer in January.
1: Hi, folks. I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where we're talking to the innovators, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are committed to building successful businesses that also build a better world. I want you to join me in a thought exercise. Let's say that after however many years of hard work and dedication, you've reached the absolute pinnacle of your professional journey. you climbed to the top of the ladder, won all the awards, achieved everything you've dreamed of achieving. What do you do next? Do you dig in and maintain, try to keep yourself at that level for as long as you can? Do you move the goals further and try to push the peak even higher? Do you call it a day, lock in your gains, and step back and enjoy the fruits of your labor? There is no one right answer to the question, but it's one that's worth thinking about as we pursue our goals and try to build our legacies. Whatever your answer is, I'm going to go out on a limb and bet that very few of you said give it up to become an educator, resurrect a defunct historical college in the middle of a pandemic, and devote yourself to shaping a diverse new generation of talent in your field, all while simultaneously rebuilding a once-proud American manufacturing tradition. If you did say that, well, one, wow, and two, boy, do I have a show for you today. Because this week, our guest is Dr. Dwayne Edwards, founder of Pencil Lewis College of Business and Design, Michigan's first and only HBCU, which he helped to reopen, and the Gem Studio. Now, not only has Dr. Edwards done all the things that I just mentioned, which would be a lifetime's worth of work for most of us, but he's also had an entire career as one of the top sneaker designers in the game, working as a senior designer for Nike and the design director for the Jordan brand. He's collaborated on signature shoes with some of the biggest names in sports and entertainment, from Tupac to Dr. Dre to Derek Jeter, and of course, the GOAT. Michael Jordan himself. He's a trailblazer for black designers in the footwear industry and a sneakerhead icon. And now he's blazing a new trail to help young aspiring designers follow in his footsteps. His is an incredible story of perseverance, dedication, dreaming big, and giving back. And it's a true privilege to get to sit down and chat with him for a bit today. So let's get into it. Dr. Edwards, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat, man. And we've had like so many different kinds of founders, but I, we went back and looked. I think you're definitely the first founder of a, of a, of a college, if, if we can take <laughs> that privilege. We'll talk a lot about that in a little bit, but I want to start much, much earlier before, and, and we can talk about how we got there. Where are you from originally?
0: I am originally from Joliet, Illinois. I was born there, but I moved to Inglewood, California when I was 3 years old. So I was raised in Inglewood, and so I claim Inglewood.
1: And what what was it like growing up in Inglewood back then when you when you were being raised there?
0: Um man, Inglewood in the in the late 70s, early 80s, that was the most dangerous city in America, yeah. man. That was the height of the gang era in LA, the beginning of the crack era in LA, but it was normal, like it's weird to say that, but it was just, that was just what I knew. I didn't know anything different, right? And, and so that was just what my version of normal was. Who were your childhood influences? What were you, what were you into? What were you excited about? I would say Bruce Lee, for sure. Uh, yeah, obviously, first introduction was, you know, the movies. And then once I got older and I was able to read books or want to read books, then I start to understand he was just as great of a philosopher as he was a, a fighter and then obviously sports, man. Inglewood is the city of champions. So the, the Showtime Lakers in the eighties and USC football. And you know, I don't I don't claim the, the transient NFL teams we had in LA. We had the Raiders like three times and then and then and then I think the Rams <laughs> once or twice, but
1: but yeah, the Lakers for sure. Excellent. When did the the passion, the excitement around shoes and sneakers start for you? How was that born?
0: You know, it was it was me as a kid born with the gift to draw anything I could see. And so I would draw sports figures. TV Guide had a competition in there, draw Tippy the Turtle, win like 5,000 cash prizes. So I was just always the kid just drawing a bunch of stuff. And then this one time I remember getting specifically a 1981 Franco Harris football card. And that was one of the first times I saw his pony cleats. So it was normally, which is, Crazy to think about. Like normally, they would cut the athletes off at the knees, like so they would never show the whole athlete. And this time, they had a they had the full view of Franco, and and so I started drawing the cleat, and it was difficult for me to to do it. And so I just got fixated on drawing the shoes, and so that was really now that was eighty one. So when I was twelve, you know, that's when I really started drawing shoes on my little three by five index cards. And what did your teachers think about that? (laughs) Well, I mean you know once I got into school and and you know I should have been doing my math homework and should have been doing my other class work inside a class, I was drawing shoes every minute I got and this one teacher, Mrs. Weathers, you know she had made a deal with me after taking my shoes from me. <laughs> um, she goes uh, I'll let you draw as much as you want as long as you do my work right So she was the only teacher that allowed me to draw shoes in class and so that was the best class I had because I was able to do what I really wanted to do. And I remember going back to visit her but maybe four years of me getting into the industry, and she still had some of my shoes in her desk drawer. And this was my seventh grade teacher. Wow. Yeah, so it was kind of cool. And, and she wouldn't give them to me either. Like, I wanted them. <laughs> uh, she wouldn't give them to me.
1: She knew she had something precious. <laughs> was it a skill that was facilitated once you got into high school? Was Were there art classes that kind of cultivated it? Or, or how were you able to continue fulfilling that passion?
0: Well, it definitely was not my art classes. (laughs) Well, I would say art class singular because I was kicked out of art class. I was kicked out of art because I was drawing shoes instead of fruit. And my art teacher was pissed off. and, And so she stuck me in drafting as punishment, but it ended up being the most amazing gift I could have received because drafting is the complete opposite of art in the sense that it teaches you structure and discipline. It it helps you create a a process. And I was able to marry that structure with raw ability. And that's where really, even to this day, how I function as as a designer is with that structure and openness at the same time. But what really, really, I think, honed my addiction to sneakers was just wanting to have shoes that match my basketball uniform. My school colors were green and white. You know, back in the 80s, you can get any color pair of Nikes you wanted as long as they were white and black and white, white and white silver. And so I would go to the shoe repair shop, get some green green shoe dye and go to the hardware store, get some duct tape and an x blade, tape up my whole shoe, leave the swoosh there, dye it green, let it sit overnight, come to school with shoes no one's ever seen before. And, you know, once you get that first, flow of compliments and stares, then you just want it more and more and more. So that became my, my thing in high school was customizing sneakers. Give us a little bit of sense of,
1: of what sneaker culture is, why it's important, how it's become such a, a critical part of, of cultural America.
0: Yeah, man. Well, back then there was no culture. I mean, there was right. no, there was no sneakerhead title, right? It was just people who wanted to be different. And, and so for, for us, we didn't know we were building a culture. We, we didn't know we were creating a whole industry, but we were doing it all out of necessity. And, and when I say necessity, it was the necessity of having something that no one else had. And so I think the kids today are spoiled because, you know, they can just look on their phone and see what's out now. We had to wait until Saturday and go to the mall physically go to the mall and physically go to the store to see what was available every weekend. And then it got to the point where we would ride the bus multiple cities away so we can see what's in the mall in other places beside the mall by our house. So we can have different shoes and bring it back. So we we were constantly on what now kids call the hunt. Like we were on the hunt to find stuff that nobody else had that gave us street cred. Right. And so that, that became just kind of an addiction of of what I had to do to fulfill my my sneaker problem, and at that time, you know, growing up in in, in Inglewood, if you had something too good on, somebody want to take it from you, and and so uh, you you never wanted to hear two questions people would ask you. One is where did you get those from, because you never want to tell anyone your secrets of where you you know where you shop. And then the other one is, what size do you wear? Because that means they, they're sizing you up to see if they're going to take your shoes or not.
1: <laughs> Having worked in the industry through the evolution and kind of the explosion of sneakerhead culture, I'm curious if you could like pinpoint when it became popularized, when the tipping point might have, or what catalyzed it?
0: You know, it's, it's I think it's different on different coasts. I would say for sure, West Coast would run DMC and, and Adidas. They made a song about it as a cultural reference. Right. And then Adidas found out later, like, so they didn't, they weren't paid to do that. They did it culturally to be relevant, to talk about their neighborhood and what they liked. And then the industry found out about it and embraced it as, Oh, like this is a whole new thing that we didn't even think about because that was a performance basketball shoe, but it was worn with no laces from a style perspective. And so I think once, the culture, the, the kids start to see they can capitalize on it, then that's when it started to become a business. And then that's when it started to grow, right? And, and then that's when, you know, our our two-hour bus rides turned into calling your cousin in a, in a whole nother coast saying, hey, what came out over there, right? Can you ship it to me, right? So that whole hunt just became national and then global.
1: Yeah. And so- you 're smack dab in the middle of it both geographically but also professionally let's let's tell that story so you finish up high school you pinpoint that intersection of of the structure that you learned from drafting with your natural creative abilities as kind of the marriage that really was a unique differentiator for you that really helped propel your skills and your career did you know at that time that that marriage existed could you feel as you were taking the drafting class yeah this is this is what's going to empower me to be a huge success here? Or was that, no, is that more of a looking back? You recognize not that?
0: looking back completely. Yeah. I mean, when you're a kid, you don't think about the future, man. I mean, <laughs> I was just enjoying the moment. Like it was just something that I naturally love to do. And and I love these two sides that I was being exposed to because I didn't know what design was. I knew what art was, but I didn't know what design was. And so I was introduced to a whole new area that I didn't see myself necessarily fitting in because I didn't see anyone look like who looked like me who did it. I only saw athletes. I only saw entertainers. I only saw rappers. Like I only saw drug dealers. Like those are the levels of success that I had visibility to. And so I didn't see success as an entrepreneur or a designer or an artist. I wanted to do it, but I didn't know what that meant. So let's let's talk about the big break. You graduate and
1: give us the story of your big break in the industry.
0: <laughs> so uh, graduate high school, I stopped working at McDonald's finally, and uh, it was trying to get a real job and, and didn't really have any skills besides a high school diploma. And so I decided to join this temp agency called uh, Robert Half and Account Temps. And uh, me and my best friend at the time, we, we joined because his aunt worked there. And so I got an assignment to, you know, file papers at a footwear company called LA Gear. And, you know, I'm like, hey, this is a footwear company. It's not Nike, but let me see if I can get a job here outside of filing papers in the accounts payable department, which is what my temp assignment was. And so I would ask questions and like, hey, what does it take to be a designer here? And they were all saying, hey, well, you have to, you know, go to college and study design and have a design degree. And. So I kind of gave up because I'm like, I'm not going to college and I don't have any money to get an education around design. So I just kept filing papers. And about a month in, they wanted to improve the morale of the company. And so they put these wooden suggestion boxes in every department of the company and they wanted the employees to speak to them, you know, about ways that they can be happier, things that can improve the company. And so me as a not a full time employee, I couldn't really participate, but I was still drawing sneakers. And so I started drawing my versions of what L.A. gear shoes should look like. And um, one of the people I worked with was like, hey, you should you should put it in the box. And I'm like, well, it's not for me to do that. And they were like, no, just do it. And and so every day, a new sketch in the box for about six months. I did that. And one day I hear like doing their support to the president's office over the intercom system this is in the late '80s, so there was no email. There was none of that, right? So if if you wanted somebody, everybody knew you were looking for somebody. So I heard it, and I'm just like, "Whoa! Like, why is the president want to fire me? I don't even work here. Like, why, why do, <laughs> <laughs> he personally want to fire me." So I, I walk to the office, and people are looking at me like, "What did you do?" and And so I go in, and, and uh, his name is Robert Greenberg, and he sits me down. He was like, so tell me about, tell me about yourself. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm a temp in the accounts payable department. And I just graduated from Englewood high school seven months ago. And he was like, wait, you're not even an adult yet. And I was like, no, I'm like, I'm 18. But he was like, well, how did you learn how to do this? And he had all 180 of my sketches on his desk. And I was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you you, you got all of those. I was like, I've been drawing shoes since I was 12 and I've always loved to draw. And I figured I can help you guys. If you guys wanted an idea, you can have it. And he was like, well, I I like your ambition. And he said, uh, he said, would you consider working here as a designer? And I was like, yeah, how much do I have to pay you for this job? And uh, he was like, no, 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 I, we'll pay you and you can start after the new year. And, and so I turned 19 in December and I started as a professional footwear designer in January of the following year. It's
1: an incredible opportunity and it seems like a snapshot of mentorship that perhaps you've carried with you as you've become a mentor to many. Tell us a little bit about the experience and impact of, of having someone like that in leadership, in a key role invest in you and take the time and effort to bring you
0: along. Yeah. You know, he, uh, so technically he did invest in me because he had to pay a thousand dollars to get me out of my temp contract. And so, uh, I just wanted, that was my first time having a, a professional mentor, so I wanted to learn from him. And, and so he was like, all right, well, you know, in the new year, meet me, you know, early in the morning and then we can talk. And, um, and so I, I get to work at 7 a.m. thinking I'm going to beat him to work and he's already there. And then the next day I get there at 6.45, he's already there. Next day, 6.30, he's already there. 6 a.m., he's already there. And it, it wasn't until 5.30 in the morning that I beat him there. And so he's like, why are you here? And I was like, I was trying to see when do you get in. And then I want to know, what do you do when you get in this early? And so I started coming in when he came in at 530 in the morning. And I would sit and watch him read industry information, current news. He would talk into his dictaphone to plan out his day. And then he would walk around and see the office, see what's going on. So I learned a process of how to go about my day in a structured way. And then that carried over into how I designed in a very structured and organized, disciplined way. And then just the the fact that he he gave me that opportunity that he didn't have to. That made a huge impression on me. And and still to this day, before COVID, I would see him twice a year in Vegas at a trade show, and I would hug him and thank him for giving me an opportunity that he gave me 30-something years ago because he didn't have to. And I wanted him to understand that he didn't have to do that, and I appreciated that. And all he wanted me to do was to take advantage of the moment. And I did. And so that is how I mentor kids today is I don't care where you come from. Like, he didn't judge me. I'm from Inglewood. He's from Boston, lived in Marina Del Rey. Like, he's never even been to Inglewood. And it was only 10 minutes away from Marina <laughs> Del Rey. But uh, he didn't judge me based on what I look like. He didn't judge me based on my background and, and who I was. He saw ability. He gave me an opportunity based on that
1: alone. And that relationship continued, right? Like, you, you yeah. talk us through the next few jobs before we get to Pencil.
0: Yeah. So um, I was at LA Gear for about three and a half years. He decided to leave the company, and I left the company when he left the company. And then, about almost a year later, he called me and said hey i'm 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 back in the shoe business i want you to come back and help me build these two streetwear brands called cross colors and carl canai he obtained the licensing rights to do the footwear for it and so he asked me to come back and do that with him by that time he had formed a new company called sketchers and so i came back and managed his cross colors and carl canai business for him and designed all the footwear and and i'm i'm still only like 23 Um, And and I'm designing shoes with like Tupac and Biggie and Snoop and Dr. Dre and all these like hip hop royalty, not knowing at the time that they would be hip hop royalty. We were all young at the same time. And so from there, the license ran out and and then I was going to leave. And and he said, well, you know, what would you want to do to stay? And I was like, well, I would love to have my own brand. And so he was like, "All right, well, I'll give you the chance to do that." So I created my own brand at Sketchers called City with an S, because I was traveling all over the world, and I noticed how design was different and style was different everywhere else. And so we were the number two ranked brand. Number one was Jordan. And so I was right behind Jordan, and within nine months, um, Skechers was going public. And so when he was going public, you, you had to divest of smaller things and get focused. So they divested of my brand. So I left the company and joined Nike. (laughs) And, and so when I left, uh, Skechers took some time off, joined Nike, and then I joined the Jordan brand about a year after that.
1: What was it like walking into, in Portland, walking into Nike headquarters, how did that feel? Do you remember that that experience?
0: Man, it's like Willy Wonka and a Chocolate Factory. Man, it's like, <laughs> uh, but for sneakers, like is is Disneyland for sneakers? Uh, is Disneyland for sports? You know, Portland and uh, and L.A. are completely different places. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so first, it was getting used to the cultural difference, the environmental difference, the people difference. But the sneaker piece was like universal. And so I was in heaven being able to see the shoes that I've loved as a consumer firsthand, how they're made and how they're designed was a dream come true. And then being able to work with Jordan honestly wasn't even a dream that I had. Like, I didn't even think that was attainable. The Lakers where the Lakers played was in Inglewood and they didn't have like strict security back in the eighties and early nineties. So and because it was Hollywood, you know, people would leave the game at halftime or in the third quarter. So me and my friends would just hang out and wait for the door to open and just slide right on in to the door. And the the last game that I snuck into the forum was the game that Jordan won his first championship in L.A. And 10 years later, 10 years and about two months later, I was sitting next to Michael Jordan designing a shoe for him.
1: I mean, that really is the pinnacle of footwear,
0: athletic oh, footwear. Absolutely. It's the most coveted job you can you can imagine, yeah. So
1: what did you want to do from there? How, how did you envision fulfillment or growth when you're already at the, the peak?
0: Honestly, I just didn't want to mess it up. Yeah. I was a fan of the brand. My relationship with the brand and the industry was different than I think most people. And so now me, quote unquote, having the keys to the car, right, um, and being able to drive the culture that takes on a different personal responsibility that most people don't understand i mean just one at that time just a single air jordan was 100 million dollars in revenue just one shoe was 100 million dollars in revenue and so you know there's a lot of people who would want that shot right but if if someone put 100 million dollars on your table and said don't mess it up how many people would stay at that table <laughs> right so there's, there's a lot of st- uh, pressure there, but honestly, it was, it was stressful and exciting at the same time because I, I got a chance to work with the, the best athlete ever to play a sport and being able to see him off the court and learn from him off the court and understand his competitive nature and what drove him to be great, like that bled right into me as a designer and as a creative So I fed off of his energy, both his playing days and then his non-playing days. So you're
1: at the top of your game, you're making shoes with Jordan, and then you have this major pivot that starts you down the path to being an educator. I'm curious what was going through your mind at that moment to set you on that path. What was the impetus for making such a big career change and starting Pencil?
0: Yeah, man, I vividly remember a gentleman's name is Nick DePaula. He he used to write for this magazine called uh, Soul Collector he was interviewing me and he, you know, asked about my career retrospective. And at this point I was 23, 24 years into the industry. And he was like, so tell me, you know, what are you most proud of? And I couldn't answer it immediately. And and it made me think about it. And, and he started saying like, you know, what shoe is it? Like what athlete did you meet that you loved? And, you know, and I was like, nah, man, it's none of those things. I was like, it's actually, and I started writing names down on a piece of paper and I gave them a list of names. And and I was like, no, it's actually this. It's, it's at least this list of people that I met when they were in high school or college that wanted to be footwear designers. And I spent my spare time showing them how to do that. And they end up getting a job here at Nike or Jordan. And I said, That's probably what I'm most proud of because that's different than a product. That's a person that's going to have family impact and generational impact. A shoe will come and go, right? But the impact that you can make on lives, it does last a whole lot longer. And and I said that off the cuff, but it it was true. And then a friend of mine who used to work at Nike with me, his name is Kevin Carroll. He wrote this book called Rules of the Red Rubber Ball. And so I read this I read his book and the book is it speaks about discovering your passion and he explains how a red playground ball took him to all over the world and allowed him to do all these amazing things and so after I read the book I realized my red rubber ball was a number 2 pencil I never knew that that number 2 pencil really literally designed my life like it allowed me to escape the city of Inglewood alive. Um, It allowed me to do something that I would do for free and do it for two and a half decades. But I also realized it was something I needed to give back, though. I needed to give back everything that I learned to more people than what I put on that list.
1: Number two, Pencil. Yep. Not a coincidence that you then created the Pencil Footwear Design Academy. So how did you take that from a realization into practice, into something that was actualized with students and place and curriculum. And what was that process like?
0: So I I took a unique approach to it because two parts. One, I didn't go to college, so I didn't have a perspective of what college was like. Two, I was a hiring manager for two decades. So I would see portfolios from kids graduating from these big design schools and I noticed how they weren't graduating with the skills that they needed to get a job. And when I was teaching these, those people on that list, I was teaching them the way that I worked at the company and they were getting jobs from these interactions that we were having. And so um, I decided that I wanted to do that more. And, and so I took my sabbatical from Jordan and I said, hey, I'm gonna take eight weeks off. I don't know if I'm gonna come back but I need to take eight weeks off to just to clear my head and, and figure out what my next steps are. And, and during those eight weeks, I decided to test what a footwear design school would look or class would look like. And so what we did was we put together this two week workshop of exactly what it would take to design a Jordan from an idea to a finished sketch on paper and in real time, that's how much time we had at Nike it was two weeks. And so I was like, well, let me put these kids through exactly what it looks like and feels like so they can really understand how hard it is to do this job. And so I paid for 40 students to take this workshop at the University of Oregon, and 35 of those students are professional footwear designers to this day these kids worked 14 hours every day straight for 14 days because they absolutely loved They loved it. They never were taught this way. They were immersed in this sneaker thing with people from other countries and other states, but they had this common thing of sneakers that they bonded over, so they didn't want to leave. And one kid in the class asked, like, hey, can I post up? on the, on the internet, like, Hey, what we're doing. So every day he would blog about the day that he just completed. We ended up having thousands of people follow his blog after these two weeks. And from that blog, I got invited to teach at art center, which is one of the top design schools in in the U S. And then I got invited to teach at Parsons, one of the top fashion design schools in the country. And then shortly after that, I got invited to teach at MIT. And then I decided to retire from the industry completely.
1: You knew teaching was was what you wanted to do now.
0: Yeah, because it it within the first week, I fell back in love with design because I didn't realize how much the corporate side took away from me from the natural love of what it was and what I was doing. And then to be able to share knowledge with young, open-minded people. And then for them to apply that knowledge, and then for that knowledge to turn into a job, that became addicting. Like I was able to help somebody and they get a job from it. And so, yeah, that's when I decided like, I want to, I want to retire completely and and be a a full-time educator. So you've got a a
1: curriculum and, you know, in the Startup industry, a great MVP product, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. You go around the country and refine it with a few other test cases, bring it back to Portland, and you launch it. How how did that go? What was that the early days, kind of the Pencil Footwear Design Academy? What did that look like?
0: Yeah, man. So I I approached education the same way I approached designing sneakers, where I learned everything about it, identified the problems, and created some solutions that were not new and different, but new and better solutions to every problem that we created. And so I started asking students, what do they want? Hey, if you can create your own school, what would you want your school to look like? And the first thing they said was free. <laughs> so first, there was the first one was free. The second one was, it would be great to be taught by people who are in the industry and who's done it at a high level. And it would be great to work with the industry directly on projects. So then I went to the industry and asked, well, what do you want if you were to create your own school? And and they said that, well, we would want passionate students who are closely connected to the products that we create. And then we would want the students to learn on new technologies and software that we use at our company. And we would want all the instructors to be professionals. And so I'm like, oh, okay. So I just married those together. And then I went to the suppliers who I used to work with at Nike, the the Apples, the Wacoms, the material vendors. And so we created this concept called Pencil Footwear Design Academy. All of our instructors were two and three decades industry experts at a high level. All of our partners were the companies that would supply them with the talent. And we asked the companies to pay for it because they were the beneficiaries of the talent they agreed and so we started teaching that way and then we started getting results and the more results we started to get meaning kids getting placed in internships and those those internships turning into jobs then more companies started coming to us and saying hey can we work with you and give them the criteria of hey well we we want to promote a, a free education system that teaches kids exactly what they need to get a job. If you're offering a job to these kids, yes, we can work together. And so that's how we started. We started doing it that way. We did it for 10 years that way, work with the industry's best brands. And within 10 years, we, we had over 500 kids in jobs working at the industry. Most of those kids never went to college or they dropped out.
1: 10 years of incredible success. And then you find a new opportunity. How did the marriage with Lewis College happen?
0: Yeah, so 2020 was an interesting year, man. Um, uh, For everybody. <laughs> yeah, globally. Yes, globally. Yeah. So besides the pandemic, which ironically, during the pandemic, we closed our doors like everyone else closed their doors. So we completely shut down during the pandemic. Our brands reached out and said, hey, once once this is over, we'll pick back up where we left off, right? And then George Floyd gets murdered uh, midway through the year. And then you start to see an outpouring of companies supporting black communities and, and black talent. And so when the company started to figure out what they wanted to do with some of their funding and they went to education. And then when they went to design education for black talent, they realized we were the only educational entity that was producing black talent. Other industries started asking, "Hey, can we work together? And can we work within your system?" And so we started getting inquiries outside of the footwear industry in 2020 when we were completely closed, by the way. And then I was having a conversation in November with one of my former alumni who lives in Detroit. In casual conversation, he goes, "Yeah, you know, Detroit used to have an HBCU," and I was like, "Wait, really? What do you mean it used to have an HBCU?" It's like, "Yeah, closed. Um, I don't know that much about it." And He mentioned that because he had been trying to recruit me to Detroit for three years to open Pencil in Detroit. And I kept saying no, because it it didn't make sense for us to be in Detroit, because our industry was in Portland and other cities outside of Detroit. And so when he told me about Lewis College, I jumped online and, and read everything about Lewis College of Business and discovered the founder, Dr. Violet T. Lewis, and her amazing story of how... This woman started a college with a $50 loan and borrowed typewriters in 1928, purely just to give women, Black women, a chance to learn the skills needed to work in an office. Like that was her pure foundational secretary school. It did so well. In 1939, she moved to Detroit and did the same thing with Ford and GM and General Motors and some of the government agencies in in, in town they were all graduates of Lewis college and, and they were the first black office employees. And this was in the forties and fifties. And so the, the school thrived as a bit small business college here. And, and then it, it, it closed in 2013, I believe. So I'm, I'm reading all this online. And then in one of the articles the family is quoted saying, they've tried to bring the college back, but few attempts didn't pan out. So I'm, I'm digging and, and I see they started selling all the assets And so they put the campus up for sale. And so I see the realtor's name and phone number on the picture. So I call the realtor and like, hey, you know, is this building still for sale? And he was like, no, we just sold it like two weeks ago. And I was like, dang. I said, well, I was like, do you have any way of connecting with the family? And and so he introduced me to the family. So I talked to the family. I fly out to Detroit and I mentioned to them is like, hey, have you guys ever thought about reopening the school? Are you still interested? Because I would love to talk to you about reopening a school, but I would want to add design to it. And they didn't know too much about the design industry. And they were like, well, we would love to consider it, but we really don't want to be involved as much as we were because it was a family run school. So I acquired the college from them and merged it with my academy, moved everything from Portland to Detroit and reopen the college as Pencil Lewis College of Business and Design. And we had to file two state bills to get the college reopened. And we got the official clearance to reopen in December of 21. So we got reinstated as Michigan's loan HBCU in December of 21. And then we officially reopened in May of 22. There's so much that's incredible in that whole story. Literally have goosebumps. Um,
1: so that gets us to today, more or less, you have a bunch of amazing projects, but one that you guys talk a lot about is your, um, gem studio, because that seems like it's somewhat foundational to the new pencil 2.0, your, your new life in Detroit. How did that come about?
0: Yeah. So the, so the college is built off of three pillars, the business pillar, the design pillar and the manufacturing pillar. And so on the manufacturing side of it, we want to be able to help students understand the whole process from business to retail. And in order for us to do that, we needed to build a factory so we can show the manufacturing process. Also in 2020, we started having conversations with retailers about standing up a footwear factory because there was a lack of Black-owned footwear companies in the United States. Um, So in partnership with DSW, we opened the first black-owned footwear factory, and it's called GEMS, J-E-M-E-S, and it's actually an acronym for this amazing gentleman by the name of Jan Ernst Metzleger, who in 1883 revolutionized the footwear industry with his invention of the lasting machine. So a lasting machine is is fundamentally the way that you would cement a upper and a bottom together. In the 1800s, you could only do 50 pairs a day. And so Jan knew there was a faster way of doing it in a better way. So it took him four and a half years to create a machine that increased it to 700 pairs a day. And, you know, he had no formal education. He was just a genius and a cobbler. And his one invention revolutionizing industry. And and so I was made aware of John about two decades ago, but no one ever really heard about him. And so I was like, we we have to honor this man who changed the footwear industry. So that's where Jim's comes from.
1: How many cobbler manufacturing facilities are there in America in general? It has to be one of the few that's you know
0: so we're the only black owned one but there's probably 30 footwear manufacturing pl- spots in the US roughly somewhere around there and not that many are on the athletic side so we're on the athletic and the lifestyle side but the, the whole point of it is for us to to bring back U.S shoemaking also give you know young folks a chance to have their own business and have their own footwear company but also really teach them the business so they understand that it is a business. It's not just, hey, I have this idea for a shoe. You need to have a business, not just an idea, because you're going to have to have multiple ideas instead of just one. A lot of what
1: you've talked about and done, I think, reinforces an element of, of what we would consider sustainability, broadly speaking, which is around the uh, human sustainability, the sustainability of of the workforce, of of social sustainability, I'm curious how you think about sustainability in the industry and how you might consider yourself a champion in some ways that are not traditional ways of defining it, but how would you look at how you guys have helped reinforce or grow or expand an industry in good ways?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say a couple ways. One, we're trying to get trying to get people employed in the industry who genuinely love the industry who want to see it grow and, and want to see it grow into something that they could be proud of instead of it just being a job, so to speak. And then we're also teaching them in a way to understand how to be a better professional and a better person because, you know, designers have always had a, a stigma of being arrogant and conceited and hot-headed and, you know, stubborn and all these things and all of it's true um but but it's it's how do you understand you could be exceptional at what you do and a good person exceptional at what you can do and a and a great professional right so we're we're, we're really trying to make sure that people are employed who actually really are good people and who want to grow and do something impactful into the industry and that also trickles into the design side of it as well is is create with a reason for creating. Don't create just because you think it looks good. Have a reason for what you create. Have a process that you can be proud of and share so people can understand this is how you've got to your solutions so you can explain yourself properly. So we're we're just really trying to look at, take a holistic view of product creation and and including people into that process. You
1: were most certainly one of the first and, and certainly high profile black designers of footwear at kind of the highest levels in at Nike. And, and you've made a point of, you know, through the Academy and, and now the college diversity is important. And, and I'm curious if you can talk about that why do we, I mean, I, I think we all recognize the importance of it, but it's not always as easy for everyone to articulate why that matters so much.
0: Yeah. So I, I look at it two ways. Um, one I think diversity of thought in general is just a good idea. Okay. Um, Where if you, if you put 10 diverse people in the room from different States, 10 different States, 10 different countries, 10 different ethnicities and backgrounds, and you give them a project and you give the same room with the same people, (laughs) the same project, the one with the diverse people is going to come out with different ideas and new ways of looking at things. Right. So, I think the first part of it is helping people understand diversity breeds innovation. The second part of it is it's more of a I think an accountability perspective. So I, I think that if you're if you have a company that markets towards a diverse customer and you specifically make money off a diverse customer intentionally, I think you have an obligation to have a diverse workforce. Because it's you can't just put a black face in your advertising and marketing and you get all, these, all this funding from this demographic, but yet you don't employ that demographic. I, I think that's a hypocritical approach to capitalism. We're just trying to make sure that those brands who value and rely on and see their customers as diverse customers, that you complete the cycle and the thought process. If this is who you want to represent your company, they should not only represent your company in advertising and marketing, they should also be employed in your company as well.
1: Right. Are there any students that you just will never forget, students that uh, whose stories you want, you'd want to spotlight?
0: There's this one kid I know that his friends sold their sneaker collection to raise money for him to come to Portland to be a part of one of our programs because he didn't have enough money to get there. We've had a student from Korea learn English just to get into one of our programs. We've had kids that have given up full-time jobs to come into our programs. Kids that were a part of our programs that slept in their car or had trouble eating for a period of time, but never said anything, right? But just those stories of, of determination of, of people who were just determined to take advantage of an opportunity. Those are the kids that we want to reach is those who have that inner passion and that inner drive to be great and then give them a place to stay, right? (laughs) And give them some food to eat. But that's the one thing that we can't teach. Like we can't teach passion. Like we can help you get better at design and better at things, but that internal will to want to do something great that's hard to get out of people. I think a percentage of it you're born with and the other part that you acquire by being around like-minded people. So for us, a lot of it is really how do we test people how bad they want an opportunity? And and we do that with the workload and you know, it's not easy working with us because we put a lot of work on you the same way a company will put a lot of work on you. Yeah. You've had two chapters,
1: certainly both connected and both... With incredible success. As you think about the aggregate of your career right now, do you have a thought as to what you hope your legacy really ends up being?
0: The people, the lives that we were able to impact, but the lives that they were able to impact. So it's not only the people that we were able to bring in as a student that has gone on to get jobs and and fulfill their dreams, but who did they bring along with them? And then did they also put that on the people that they help, right? And so it's like being able to create this, this legacy upon legacy upon legacy upon legacy. That's when it works. When when it just stops at one generation, then it helps, but it doesn't really help. And, and so a big part of what we do is we ask all of our students to, if we agree to mentor, you, you need to mentor too, and you need to put that on the next person, the next person, next person, right? So it's 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 really hoping that that lineage of mentorship continues. I love one of your quotes I've
1: read a couple of times. I think you mentioned it once before as well. That at that pivot point between design, the design world and the education world, you had a moment of clarity and you put it so profoundly that you really hope that by the end of your career, people forgot that you were a shoe designer. Yeah, that's the goal, man. Yeah. What a profound way to think about it. What a... And it's a challenge for everyone who kind of defines themselves as their job as part of their identity, like to take a step back and think about what does that actually mean for society broadly? How how can I extrapolate from what I am as a career person to what I can bring to the world? I have often asked folks I've interviewed, if uh, the young version of you could see what you were doing today, what, what do you think they would say? I know you've actually gone through this thought exercise already. What do you think the 17 year old you would say if he could see where you're at right now?
0: I don't think he'll believe me. Yeah. I don't think I would believe me. I think it would be really shock like that, that is going to happen to us that we're going to, we're going to be okay. Right? Like I think that's probably the biggest piece is that we're going to be okay. We're going to be able to have a family and provide for our family and, and then, Oh, by the way, do some really cool stuff along the way and meet some really amazing people along the way. And, have as many shoes as I ever could ever want in my lifetime, uh, along the way. But, uh, probably the biggest piece is that we're going to be okay. We'll
1: put the, uh, the letter that you wrote yourself, the wrote to yourself, younger self into the show notes for folks to read when this is out. But I'm curious if you look back at that, if there's any parts that you love or think are more inspiring. I just, I thought the whole thing was incredibly powerful. I'm curious if as you look, look back at it, what stands out.
0: It's, it's interesting. I know when I was writing it, as I was writing it, I was able to find these little markers that was reminding me that I was on the right path of where I was going or where I should be going, right? But I, I think maybe probably the more serendipity part of that letter is the Foot Locker equation of me as a young sneakerhead that it wasn't a term yet. Just my goal was just to get a job at Foot Locker, man. Like, that was the pinnacle for me was getting a job at Foot Locker. And, and when I was not able to do that, but then yet after the last rejection, a year later, I had a shoe in Foot Locker. Like I, I couldn't have predicted that would happen. And then come full circle, they become not only my career partner, but then now my education partner to actually now paved the way for future versions of me. So what we're doing today with Foot Locker is providing 17-year-old kids a pathway into this industry. But the full circle moment is they're paying me to do what I wish I was able to do when I was 17 years old.
1: A big thank you to Dr. Dwayne Edwards for today's inspiring conversation. To learn more about Dwayne's impactful work and beautiful designs, you can visit gemsbypencil.com. That's J-E-M-S-B-Y-P-E-N-S-O-L-E.com. This episode was produced by Will Gatchel and Jeff Rock, executive produced by me with editing from reasonable volume. Special thanks to the Consensus team, folks like Kate Tucker, creative director, Greg Herigel on research, Patrick Gallagher, Consensus in Conversation can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a like or rating. It really helps us out. And if you're interested in telling your story as a guest or just want to stay in the know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Consensus in Conversation is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media produced in association with Reasonable Volume. All right, we'll see you next week.